0: Well, let's take our Bibles again this evening and turn together to Revelation chapter one,
1: Revelation one verse four. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, The beginning and the ending saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come. The Almighty. John, verse number four here, is writing to seven churches which are in Asia. These are real historic churches in the first century. But they also serve as representative churches of that particular time. And in these days we have considered already these are churches that are suffering for their faithfulness to Christ Jesus. John refers himself as a companion in tribulation in verse number 9. And they're suffering persecution under the reign of Domitian. The presence and power of such a ruler is yet another display of the conflict between the dragon and the woman imagery that we see developed in this very book the conflict comes as the seed of the serpent, here Domitian, seeks to harm the seed of the woman, here Christ and his church. And these are real events that are the outpouring of tremendous spiritual conflict, where we war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so the church in these days that John is writing to your churches that are warring in the midst of great conflict. That conflict that is manifest throughout all generations, even our generation. We live in this conflict. We suffer in these days. We know in Romans chapter 8 that if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God. And we suffer as joint heirs with Christ, that we be glorified with him and we suffer with him. As Romans 8, 18 tells us, Paul reckons the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There is this transition, it's not even a transition, it's a revolution between conflict and peace that comes in the coming of Christ. At this time there is suffering, in the time to come there will be glory. And so we seek to understand and to draw comfort in our present sufferings. Every part of human suffering is in part consequence of this conflict. It may not be persecution from an evil ruler, but everything we suffer in this world is, to some degree, a consequence of sin and the impact of the fall. So we're trying. How do we live in light of our sufferings? How do we live in light of our afflictions? Well, we remind ourselves that, God works all things together for good— We believe in the wise problems of God and the outcomes that He tries us. We will come forth as gold, as Job testified in his own book. We know that Christ's grace is sufficient. Whatever the thorns may be, the power of Christ is sufficient to help us in our weakness. We know that in our sufferings we grow in likeness to Christ. We're in a crucible of affliction and we find ourselves being more conformed to Christ's likeness. We know that when we suffer, we will be able to comfort others in their sufferings, and their sorrows. How the Lord helps us enables us to help others. And these are helpful considerations. As we assess our afflictions and our trials, these are important things to keep in mind from the word of the Lord. But there is a truth in the word that ought to comfort us, but that also will bring some needed reality in our sorrows. And that truth is that the coming of Christ is presented as an encouragement to the suffering church. That's the case here in Revelation 1. Behold, he cometh with clouds, verse number 7. And it acts as a parallel to Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, where Paul reminds the suffering Thessalonians and that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble them. And when will that happen? It will happen when Christ comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. He does not offer the Thessalonians the assurance that they will know justice on this side of Christ's return. But they have the assurance they will know justice on the further side of Christ's return, when Christ comes and takes vengeance on those that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that day, Christ is glorified in his saints and also pours retribution upon those who deny the gospel. That's presented by Paul as a comfort and here by John as a comfort to these suffering churches. The coming of Christ is intended to comfort us, to strengthen us. To give us reassurance. But that also, it leads us to a matter of reality, and that reality is that we may suffer until He comes or until we die. The fact that Christ's coming is presented as a comfort is indication that we may not have all our afflictions dealt with this scene of time. One of the things that we may do in our afflictions is is take the assumption, well, it will soon pass. But there are some of our afflictions, our sufferings that will not pass. And the truth is that we may even suffer death for our love of Christ. It means that we must live by faith and not by sight. In this present time, we see the demission of this world. We see those forces against us, but we see not Christ. But every eye shall see him, verse number 7. Though now our physical eyes fall upon the evil around us and our own sufferings, yet there is coming a day that we will see Christ along with the rest of humanity. And we are to take hold. We're to take hold of the truth of Christ's return and use it to encourage us as we live in the midst of conflict. Christ's return is to be a comfort to us. And it's that that, that theme that I want to leave with you for a few moments this evening. First of all, regarding Christ's return, note that it is a return in glory. The reference here in verse number 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds. We sometimes think of that in terms of coming in the clouds, and that he's going to come on a a cloudy day, as it were. And such, of course, does not do justice to the language of the word of God's The reference to him coming in the clouds here, of course, is a reference that we find over in Daniel chapter 7 regarding the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, the Messianic fulfillment of that being Christ Jesus himself. You turn back to Matthew 24, uh, and you'll see again that in the language of Christ himself, as he speaks of his own coming, he does, he takes from the language of Daniel chapter 7, and he refers to it in verse number 30 of Matthew 24, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and note, the clouds of heaven and that coming is with power and great glory. The clouds in which Christ ascended are the clouds in which he returns, and they are the clouds of the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. He comes in power and glory. His return in the clouds is a return in glory. The Lord, the Lord we know lived in humility There was no room in the inn. He comes born amongst the animals. We know that in his earthly ministry he had no place to lay his head. He comes in profound humility and in poverty. Yet he leaves this world in glory. But only a few saw his glorious departure. But in his return it will also be in glory. But now every eye shall see him. His glorious return is public and universal. What a comfort this must have been to the churches. Their Savior, whom they see not, they love. Yet their Savior, their friend, their shepherd, their king, is despised. But not then. Now, in their mind, he is doubted. Is he really who he says he is? But there will be no doubt in that day. Now they feel their own weakness, and perhaps some even felt the apparent weakness of Christ. After all, martyrs are dying for the faith, and his followers are being killed. Christ is allowing this to happen. And so they see this sense of apparent perceived weakness, but not in that day, then in triumph. And so the contrast to their experience and to that day could not be greater. They see him not, they shall see him. Now they feel weakness, now they feel the pain, but in that day they will see him in the clouds and every eye shall see him. All these things are intended to inspire patience, endurance, As our brother reminded us in the Lord's Day, that sense of patience and endurance has a sense of staying faithful under affliction. And one of the things that enables us to stay faithful under affliction is the prospect of Christ coming with clouds. He returns in glory. Secondly, he returns in judgment. I read the words, the language of 2 Thessalonians, that Christ's return is a taking of vengeance That those who pierced Christ will see him is the language of verse number 7. And they also which pierced him. Now, if the previous clause says, every eye shall see him, why would there be the need to specify, and they also which pierced him? Every eye means every eye. Why specify those who pierced him? Well, Because in the coming of Christ it is a coming in judgment, it is a coming for vengeance, for just retribution. not to get even in the way we may think of vengeance in a carnal fashion, but in a means of doing what is right and just, punishing the evildoers, holding their responsible, for all them responsible for all their evil acts. And this reference to those who pierced him will be true literally of all those who were responsible for his death. You think of the lists of people in Acts 2, Acts 4, and they're held accountable. Yes, they're under the sovereign purpose of God. Christ's death was not an accident, but at the same point, those who were those who were responsible for his death, they are held accountable in the sight of God. They did evil things, wicked hands. Pilate. Herod, the Jewish leaders, the crowd, crucify him. Indeed, all that watched this event happen and did so with complicity. There will be a resurrection of the unjust as Christ returns. The very fact that those who pierced him will see him indicates that at Christ's glorious return, there is that resurrection of the unjust. For those who pierced him are long since dead, but they will rise from the grave and they will suffer the consequence of their errors. As Christ is in John chapter 5, marvel not at this for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Those who pierced Christ will see him. It's also true of all who pierce Christ by persecuting his church. The Lord appears to Saul on that light in Damascus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you piercing me if you're like, you're putting my followers to death, but really you're persecuting me because they are in me and I am in them. The union of Christ and his church indicates that there are those who pierce Christ in the persecution of the church. that." That does not go unnoticed. God was not putting a blind eye to Domitian's wickedness. He saw Domitian in all of his cruelty. And he says to these people, they all which pierced him, they'll see him when he comes. He returns in judgment. Indeed, as the text says, all unbelievers will wheel in that day. Verse number 7, all kindreds of the earth shall wheel because of him. If you turn over to chapter 6, you will see a description of the all kindreds. The word kindred, there refers to tribes, all people groups, all tribes. But within all tribes are all sorts of people. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, and the kings of the earth and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks, of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Every kindred. All kindred will see him in that day, and they shall weal because of him. There is the intended confidence given to the people of God that all wrongs will be righted. We live, we live continually with an awareness that there are wicked acts happening around us that are not, they're not suffering the consequence that they deserve. The ungodly prosper in this season of conflict. As the dragon wars against the woman, there is ongoing times when the ungodly seem to do as they please without any retribution. They rule over the church, so it seems. But there is the confidence that in the final day, all wrongs will be righted. And yet surely as we read these words on this side of Christ's return, these words ought to produce great concern in our souls. All kindreds of the earth shall wheel because of him. I recall my feelings watching 9-11 from across the ocean. For us, it was mid-afternoon and as here, so over there, many, many stopped what they were doing and found themselves watching the television screens. I couldn't get away from the thought of the fear of those souls in the floors above the impact. When you perceive human fear, it has a tremendous impact upon your own thoughts, or else you're stony. Or else you lack all compassion, but the prospect of people suffering fear is a very moving experience, even if you yourself are not suffering that fear. You read Revelation chapter 6, and you read of the fear of those in the judgment day, the inevitable consequence of their sins being wrought upon them. And they cannot escape, though they may try to. They have no means of escape. It's too late, and they shall wail because of Christ. Ramsey, the Comte writes this, Christ rejected and offered salvation, neglected a day of grace wasted. This is the thing that will give the lost sinner his keenest anguish and wring from him at the last a bitterer wheel than devils ever uttered. I think of the fear of the ungodly in the day of judgment. I know that I will rejoice in the triumph of Christ's kingdom, but I want to feel for them now. I want to look ahead to that day that I would feel properly for them and have a proper burden for their souls. I don't ever want to have a heart that doesn't care that there are people in our areas, in our homes who will be part of that company in Revelation 6, crying out in fear. I want that always to move me. I want it to move you as well. That we'd properly pray that some who at the present are in that company will be rescued by the blood of Christ, set free to come to the point that they will not wheel because of Christ, but will praise God because of Christ. That ought to be our burden, our desire. And so, yes, there is a return of judgment. And then finally, there is a return of completion, a return of consummation, if you like. Verse number eight, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord. Alpha, Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, defined in verse number 8 as the beginning and the ending, and then in verse number 11 as the first and the last. So we're told what they mean. In the senses of using these terms, Christ referring to himself as Alpha and Omega is referring to himself as the beginning and the ending. Christ is the beginning of all beginnings. He is the beginning of creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him are all things created. Christ is the beginning of beginnings. He is the Alpha of creation. He is the Alpha of the church, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, but the author of our faith. Christ is the Alpha of the church and of the kingdom. He's the firstborn of those who will rise from the dead. He's the author of resurrection. He is the alpha in the sense of every alpha, every beginning has its origin in Christ. Your beginning physically has its origin in the work of Christ in creation. Your beginning spiritually has its origin in the work of Christ in regeneration. He is... The giver of life, he is Alpha, and he is Omega. He is the conclusion of all conclusions. Verse number 6, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are to grow in grace in the prayer of Peter in 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Again, in the words of Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, He is the beginning, yes, the beginning, the Alpha, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, the Omega. Alpha and Omega. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, verse 36. As the omega of salvation, Christ is the one who saves us to the uttermost. Full salvation, final salvation, eternal salvation, as he finishes the work, he begins. As he is the alpha of your souls, so he will be the omega of your salvation, author and finisher. He who gives you grace, the grace in which you live, is the one who will give you the grace even in your resurrection. He is Alpha and Omega. He will not fail to accomplish all his purposes. And that's why I say that verse number 8 gives us the sense that his his coming is a coming of consummation, of completion. And the assurance of this coming to complete the work is based upon Christ's attributes. Saith the Lord which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty, as The eternal God is described as the Father in verse number 4. So, what was true of the Father is true of the Son. Co-eternal, co with the Father. The Father is the one which is and which was and which is to come. And so the Son, verse number 8, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Christ is self-sufficient, which is and which was. Referring, of course, to the I am of Exodus chapter 3, it's a reminder that Christ is not dependent. That means, just to think of that in the simplest terms, that means that Christ is not reliant on someone else to complete his purposes. You may have plans in your life, but you understand that your accomplishing of those plans depends on somebody else or something else. You're also conscious that there are things that may come and thwart your plans, not for Christ. Entirely self-sufficient, independent. He's able to accomplish all his purposes. Hence, he can say, I am Alpha and Omega. He is the unchanging God, which is, which was, and which is to come. Even in the future, he is the unchanging Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging in wisdom. The wisdom that brought about salvation is the wisdom that will ensure the securing of salvation. Unchanging in his faithfulness. Having kept his word all this time, he will not fail to keep his word when he comes. He's unchanging in his love. In glory, Christ's heart towards his church has not cooled, even despite our persistent sin. He is the unchanging Savior, unchangeably our mediator. He's unchanging in his power. He is the Almighty. In our unbelief, we doubt the Lord's present power and rule. We wonder, even as we pray, we wonder why more souls aren't being saved. But we forget that the devil is entirely unable to prevent the salvation of one of Christ's sheep. The devil cannot prevent the salvation of one of Christ's sheep because Christ has all power, all authority. He is Alpha and Omega and the devil cannot snatch a sheep out of Christ's hand. Don't doubt the Lord's power. The Lord's power is securing all his good purposes and not one of his good purposes is failing.